What's up everyone? Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, thank you for joining. I am your host, Ethan Bridge. Before I dive into the intro, I'd greatly appreciate if you pulled out your phone, opened up the podcast app and left a five star rating and review. It literally takes a matter of seconds and you don't even have to stop listening. Right, today's show is one of my favorite episodes so far as I had the pleasure of speaking to Steve Sims. When it comes to getting things done, founder and CEO of thebluefish.com, Steve Sims is your man. He runs a luxury concierge company and if you take a quick look at the things he's arranged for his clients, you'll understand why his company is in such high demand. Steve is also the author of Bluefishing, the art of making things happen. He talks success, relationships and making the impossible possible. Forbes magazine even called Steve the modern day Wizard of Oz, but talking to him you wouldn't think that. Steve grew up a bricklayer from London and despite his success is still very much rooted to the ground. Steve believes that relationships are everything and he's always looking for the win-win situation. From Harvard to the Pentagon, Steve has graced some of the most iconic stages in and outside of America on topics like the ROI on relationships, how to create an experience rather than a sale, creating a win-win in every communication and getting to talk to anyone, and he means anyone. These are just some of the topics we cover in today's show. Steve is the definition of authentic. Even the man himself, Elton John, said Steve Sims defines what it means to be your authentic self. That's got to be saying something. I can't wait for you to listen to what this man has to say. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into the episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of talking to Steve Sims. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks, man. So let's start by giving the listeners that don't know who you are a quick 60-second introduction of who you are and what you do at the moment. Wow. Um, all right, so I'm a, uh, I'm a, um, a whiskey-drinking biker from East London that uh, never had any cash. Um, now I am a concierge consultant and speaker, and my clients include people like Elon Musk, the Pope, uh, Sir Richard Branson, Elton John, uh, Forbes, an entrepreneur called me the real life wizard of Oz. I've lectured at Harvard twice, uh, the Pentagon once and stages from, from Phuket, Thailand to Mexico. And I'm currently chatting to you from the hills of Los Angeles, California. Wow. What an intro. And I can't wait to find out how you went from a from a guy from East London to all of those accolades. So I can't wait to delve into that. But the way I like to start all my episodes is to throw it back with my podcast guests and talk about their upbringing and their time mm-hmm. at school. So let's yep. focus on a 15-year-old Steve. How did you Ooh. find school and what was your upbringing like? So my family were construction workers. You know, my family were, were pretty much uh, two-thirds Irish. Um, so we had that kind of stubbornness, uh, Irish zest for life. Um, school was a, like a public school uh, just outside of London. Um, certainly nothing fancy, um, usual kind of thing, you know, fights and getting the cane and stuff like that. Um, and it was just, school was just something you got through. Um, you couldn't see a purpose at it. And at the age of 15, I was very young for my years. And I'm living in Los Angeles, so I know there's a big difference between the American schooling system and the British schooling system. And you, you leave school at 16 and then you go to, to college in England, unless it's changed. Um, but uh, here in America, you don't leave school until you're kind of like 18. And then you go, I left school when I was 15 years old. I slept in and just kicked around the house for one day. And then the second day, my, work, my dad woke me up at six o'clock in the morning and went, right, you're on the building site now. So I never had a plan, never had a future. Went on the building site after 24 hours of freedom from leaving school. So, you know, literally just over 15 and a half years old. And I'm working on a building site. As an entrepreneur, and I didn't know I, was, I didn't know I was an entrepreneur then. I just knew that I was aggravated. And I just knew that I wasn't being challenged and I was frustrated and I was bored. And all of these kind of feelings and emotions in me, they didn't lead me to go, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, because there was no social, uh, there was no mentorship. Um, the mentors in my street was like, you know, 
who's the toughest guy in the village? You know, who's the coolest girl? You know, that was the only bloody mentors we had. Um, so I didn't know what I was. I just knew that I wasn't right. Um, and I bounced off the walls. My mum thought quite simply, I was just biding time before I get arrested and locked up. Um, and then I, I knew I hated my environment. So I knew more about what I hated than what I loved. I resented, and we'll go back to this. I'm going to ask you to make sure we go back to this. I resented my family upbringing at the time. Resent is a horrible word, but I'm going to use it because it was accurate. I resented how poor we were. Um, and I felt, therefore, I had been thrown into a situation that wasn't my doing. It was theirs. And I carried that resentment. So quite simply, a friend of mine was... Um, very smart, done very well at school, went to college, was, uh, had a job in Hong Kong. And he was moving over to Hong Kong to be a stockbroker. And he said, you know, there's about 160 of the British bank that are being transferred over. You know, if you come in, maybe you can get a trainee position in the London. I didn't do that. I went in and I actually applied for the Hong Kong transfer. And there were so many people going over there that somehow I got swept through and they actually sent me to Hong Kong as a trainee stockbroker. I lasted physically 24 hours before they realized that they had basically bought over a Muppet and he didn't know anything. And um, they fired me. I literally I went through orientation on the Monday. And on the Tuesday morning, I was fired. Now I'm in Hong Kong. Now I don't have a job. Um, graciously, because they were a big firm, they had to pay me for a month up front and give me free lodging. Uh, for a month, but I had nothing to do. I'm in Hong Kong, no friends, no family. Just because I was born big and ugly, I started working on the door of nightclubs. Um, and that was it. Uh, I decided then that my life is either going to be hugely successful because of me, or it's going to fail because of me. I suddenly realized that I was responsible to my decisions. Um, and that was it. That was the start of me kind of like waking up and owning my moment and uh, going from there. Awesome. Before we move on, I want to just take it back to your parents, especially because especially your dad, because you mentioned that you, you finished school, you didn't you didn't go on to further education or anything. But your dad got you up that morning and said, right, you're working. Yeah. Has he always been that fatherly figure that wanted you to do something, didn't want you to be slobbing around sitting on your ass all day? Um, and do, you, do you appreciate him for that? Because obviously he's put that working ethic in you. Well, yeah. And there's the daft thing. Every summer I was, and it was his, he owned a construction firm, okay, which consisted of about three people. A typical little, you know, East London brickie that, you know, built little walls and conservatories. And, you know, every now and then we got a, you know, a big project, but very rarely. Um, so, you know, we were always doing these little garden projects. So every summer I was working on the, on the, the building site. Sometimes I would get paid, sometimes I wouldn't. Um, and I grew up resenting the fact, as I say, that he would never let me stop. He would never let me just relax um, and not have to. And I remember we used to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I thought I was going to physically die. You know, like every teenager, you think, I haven't got enough sleep. I'm physically going to be ill and I'm going to be dying. No one should be getting up at five o'clock in the morning. What I didn't realize was that was the beginning of my education my resentment for the situation that I was in and having to live it was the education I needed that put me into a position to win every situation I've got into. Because a lot of people now, and we actually joked about this you know, before the interview, they see the highlight reel that you mentioned on Instagram. Everyone's got an Insta-perfect world. Everyone looks fantastic. No one ever posts a picture of their gas bill being late or their eviction notice, or the fact that they are running their credit card on a Thursday just to pay their bills on a Friday. No one posts any of that. They're leaning up against cars that they don't even own, let alone rent. You know, they're just in a car park and they've seen it, and they're leaning up against it talking smack. We're living in an insta-perfect world now. My world was not perfect, but I knew what hard graft was. And before long, I automatically got up at five o'clock. I get up at 6.30 in the morning, okay? I just naturally get up. I pour a cup of tea, and I'm very fortunate now. I sit out here in Milan in, in LA, and I, you look over the hills, and I'm very happy. But 
I know what it's like. If I've got a podcast to do, if I've got to have a conference call with, you know, one of my rich clients that happens to be in Dubai or, you know, Paris or, or Asia or something like that, and I've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning, that's a walk in the park compared to getting up at five o'clock in the morning and being rained on on a building site and potentially falling off dodgy scaffolding, you know? So I realized that I had been brought up in a very, very tough environment. The, by, the byproduct was it made me tough. I resented my upbringing before I realized the wealth of ethics and education that they had actually installed in me. I was lucky that I was in my mid-20s before I realized the rest of my life was actually going to be quite easy based on the upbringing that they had actually given me. So I'm glad you went back to it. I don't want everyone thinking, well, he's a prick. He resents his parents. <laughs> but um, yeah, all teenagers go through this period where you hate your parents. Um, and I use the resentment word because it's very accurate to the way I felt at the time until thankfully something clicked and I went, you know, hang on a minute. You, you guys gave me an unfair advantage. Um, and so, yeah, at the time, didn't appreciate it like all kids. Um, but later on in my life, there's nothing I can't do now. And something goes wrong and I'm like, please. I remember my granddad having to like, be taken to the hospital because a bunch of bricks fell on his feet. He broke his foot. You know, that's tough work. Me going over a contract with you ain't. So, you know, it's, uh, you have to realise those things. For sure. And especially in England and around London as well, because we can't rely on the weather. It is in the winter. It's bloody cold. It is freezing. It's raining. It's wet. Now you're in LA. Now you get to oh, experience jeepers. sun all so year I, round. I actually, yeah, I'm very fortunate in the fact that I've been able to find my ultimate. And as you know, I, I was in East London riding around on a dodgy old Honda that broke down more times than it didn't. Um, I'm now in LA and um, I collect motorcycles and I get to ride through some of the most scenic routes. And it, if it rains here, it's like for five minutes and it's novel. Um, but I'm actually, I've, I'm going, I'm giving a speech in um, Spain. Uh, later on this year in October, actually. So I've got to come into England. And for the first day, for the first time the other day, we started packing because I'm bringing my wife. And we started looking at the forecast. Hadn't looked at the forecast and suddenly realized that we were dressing for LA, but we hadn't been back to England for like eight years. So we're having to kind of dig out all the old raincoats and woolly hats. And we're going to look like idiots because everyone's going to think it's mild. And for us, you know, sitting here, like yesterday, it was 94, you know, today we've got a cool off and I think it's supposed to be a max of like 89. Um, so it's bloody hot over here, but lovely. I'm feeling, I'm going to feel that I'm going to feel the cold when I'm in England. Yesterday, it rained like I've never seen it before. It absolutely poured down. So I resent, I am very jealous of the, of the LA sunshine. <laughs> so you, we, we spoke about this insta-perfect life and what we see on Instagram is clearly not what is actually mm -hmm. behind the scenes and how and the upbringing and how the entrepreneurs actually got to that point. So how do you think this Insta perfect lifestyle is affecting the up and coming entrepreneurs of today? Badly. I think the sad thing is that we we rejoice quickly in our successes. Um, so you see this guy on the TV because he made a million bucks playing Fortnite in his mum's dungeon. Um, and, uh, then you've got every kid in the planet that plays Fortnite going, yeah, I don't need to go to school. I'm going to be a millionaire for every one millionaire. There's 10 billion people that can't afford crap and you never get to see them. You never get to see those people. And so there's a lot of structuring of position, uh, of brands. Um, there's a lot of. Uh, brand position, oh, look at my life. And if you bought this product, you would look like this. And if, if you did this, this could be you. There's a lot of this emulation. There's a lot of this in my shoes uh, kind of example. You know, you never see a car advert with ugly people in the car because the image is if I buy that car, that hot woman's going to be in the car next to me. I need that car. We don't buy products anymore. We buy the association and the assimilation of a lifestyle. You know, you buy Cartier because it's Cartier. You buy Gucci because I'm showing you I've got money. That's why I'm wearing Gucci. The fact is that that T-shirt is 500 bucks and the one from Gap is 10. 
uh, and the one from Gap may even be better quality. Ah, you can't do it. You've got to go for the Gucci because you've got to show off now. In the late 80s, it was a very visual world before the social environment. So in the 80s, it was all a case of my Ferrari. I remember when the uh, cell phones came out that were attached to suitcases uh, and briefcases, but people had those to show off how important they were. It was much more of a visual on the street. We've taken it off the street now and we put it online. And the trouble is, uh, I don't want to say kids because entrepreneurism is a weird thing. It can kick in at any year. Um, you know, Colonel Sanders of KFC was in his 90s before he became an entrepreneur. So entrepreneurs are young of mind, but not young of age. And we will all face the exact same problems. So I don't care if you're 18, 30, 50. If you're an entrepreneur, you're going to go through the same crap. And what tends to happen is you look around for guidance. And the first place that most people look for guidance is on social platforms. So they start following people. And those people realize they get following. They realize they can slip you a course. It's no good them turning around. And as you were saying earlier, yeah, this is my Lamborghini. I'm not going to show you the picture of me on the train this morning. I'm not going to show you a picture of me having trouble paying that bill. I try to be very vocal when things go wrong for me. And things go wrong for me for a lot. I lose a lot of money. I make a lot of money. I lose a lot of money. But I remember how I made a lot of money. Um, and that's the main focus. I want people to get out there, watch what's going on. But you've got to realize that it's a enhanced photoshopped reality. It's not reality. It's, it's an insta-perfect world. Add water, hop, insta-perfect world. So I think entrepreneurs, while they're in their hunger stage, who can I follow? Where can I get my information from? You've also got to force some cynicism in there and go, well, okay, your life looks good, but where did you come from? And you want to get in there. And I don't trust anyone that hasn't failed. I saw someone the other day that was brought to my attention because he wanted to speak at one of my events. Um, the guy's really skinny. And I'm not about really skinny, almost medically dangerous skinny. And um, he's now doing a fitness boot camp. And he's talking about how you can lose weight and how you can boost your metabolism. Guy's never been fat in his life. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if I'm going to learn about weight loss, I'm going to find the fattest bastard in the planet that lost all of the weight and became a Trojan warrior. That's the guy I'm going to listen to. Not the freaking supermodel that's never eaten anything more than lettuce in her life and wants to sell me a diet book. So I focus very much on the substance, not the shine. And I urge all entrepreneurs to do the same. Exactly. It's like the guy that is teaching people to how to grow an agency when they've never run an agency themselves. Well, there's no, it's worse. It, there's, there's one that's worse than that. It's those people teaching digital marketing courses that, have, that the only digital marketing they are, that have ever done in their life is to market the course that they're selling. You know, I, I know many people that have kind of like, you know, you buy this course and I'm going to show you how you can make $20,000 in a day. And that's because they marketed that course and that's what's made them 20 grand. And they go, well, first of all, you make a course, you put it online and you reach out to greedy, needy people. They pay. There's your 20 grand. Enjoy yourself. It's wrong, <laughs> but it is the world that we're living in. Yeah. And it's, yeah, as you say, it's wrong, but it's, ne it's always going to happen as well. You're always going to get these people and they will always be there. This so. is snake salesman. You're always going to get, you're always going to get people that are looking for a shady little bit. Um, and the more, the more uh, disconnected we become, the more confused we become, um, then it's going to be easier for people to pull over. As soon as digital starts to change, and bear in mind, it was only years ago that Facebook popped up. Before there, it was Friendster. Uh, actually, no, it was MySpace and Friendster. No one can remember Friendster. How long do you think Facebook's going to last? You know, you, you have no idea what's coming up next. None of us do. Um, so when the next thing comes up, it's going to come with it another breed of woohoo salesmen that go, hey, let me make you an instant millionaire by 11 o'clock this morning. All you've got to do is give me your firstborn. So yeah, there's always going to be these shady people. For sure. Um, so you were a doorman. Yep. How did you go from being a doorman to friends with Elon Musk? 
So it's very, it's very easy. For a start, I don't know many people that are friends with Elon Musk. A lot of people are, are pals, but he's a very, he's a strange cat. Um, uh, so I was working on the door and I realized that there were people that I wanted to be that came into the club. And the good thing about working on a door is you actually, you actually get to see the world. You actually get to stare at it. And you've got a couple of guys coming towards you that have had a bit of beer in them. And you know they're just going to want to get a few more beers in them and probably want to fight you later on that night. So you don't let them in. And then you get the group of girls that are out there for a party night and you get the guys that are celebrating a business deal and you get the couple there that want a first date and you get the couple there that want an anniversary. You get to recognize these things. If you love psychology, working on the door actually became a brilliant place and almost a pedestal for me to be able to look at humanity I would see people pulling up in a Ferrari and I would always play the game because I'm the big meathead. I'm the guy on the door that's not allowed to smile. And I would be just sitting there going, does he own it? You know, hmm. does he not own it? The next few seconds of how he gets out the door are going to tell me whether he does or don't. And if he gets out the door and starts looking around with everyone, you know, if you notice my Ferrari, put your jacket on. Yeah, I'm here with my Ferrari. Look at my Ferrari. You know the guy's rented it or borrowed it. Okay because he's bought that Ferrari to impress you. The guy that just gets out of the car and uh, gives the valet guy the, the keys and goes, oh, you know, have a good night, but look after it, will you? You know he's a lot more calm and confident. You know he owns the thing, you know? So it was very interesting watching these. And what I wanted to do, which is what you're doing, which is what podcasts are, are brilliant for now, I wanted a reason to be able to talk to rich people. That was the only thing I wanted because I thought if I know 10 rich people and I can have a chat with 10 rich people, what's the odds of me becoming one of them? You know, if I talk to all of my friends, which were basically broke ass bikers from East London, guess what I was. But if I could be hanging around the richest people uh, in Asia and predominantly was expats in Hong Kong, you know, I had people from Germany, Australia, all over the planet. But if I could hang around with you and you were wealthy, maybe some of those crumbs would drop down to me. So that was the first thing. And because I was a doorman and I was pretty good at it, um, I was actually really good at avoiding fights. I could cool the situation down real quick. So I got asked to do like openings of movie premieres, jewelry collections. You know, Versace opened up a store. I was asked to be. So I got to know of all of these social events. And then what I did was I would go back to my club and I would say, hey, Ronnie, you like to go out to social events, don't you? And they'd be like, yeah, we do, Steve. Do you know a few? <coughs> Funny enough, I know one around the corner. And in two days' time, so I like 500 bucks a person, I'd get you in. And they were <coughs> like, yeah, that's great. And all of a sudden, so I became a party promoter. I became a ticket tout. I became, I knew of the private parties. Um, so I became all of these different things, club promoter, because I would promote other people's events just to get those people to pay attention to me. And I've always lived with one thing. If they don't pay, they don't pay attention. If I say to you, hey, I'm going to give you a free 30-minute call, and me and you are going to chat, and we're going to go over your business, <clears throat> you're going to be happy with that, okay? But if I say to you, hey, I'm going to be speaking with 30 minutes on what you're going to be doing with your business, it's $1,000. If you pay me $1,000, which one are you going to be more committed to, the free call or the one that's cost you $1,000? The one that's cost me $1,000. Every single time, because you want your money worth. So I would actually always charge people. So even at an early stage, I'll be like, look, I've got to look after the people on the door. It's 100 bucks a person. It's 500 bucks a person. It's five grand a person. And that's how it started. Um, I became the man that can. If you wanted to know anything about nightlife in Hong Kong, you came to me. If you wanted to know where all the social scene was, the A-list parties, you came to me. And before you knew it, I was starting to look after other areas of Asia, like Tokyo and Beijing, Shanghai, Macau, Bangkok, uh, down into Manila. And then I started looking after like um, the Monaco Grand Prix and the, the Cartier Polo. Before you knew it, I, my events started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The events started getting me involved because I bought a certain kind of clientele rich but not assholes i got people that were not full of themselves but were solid people so i started to have a good following that would go to my events when i told them to go to my events 
and they would pay. So, but here's the daft thing. I still didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. Now I'm making money, you know, I was clearing serious juice. I had a lovely penthouse, you know, I had my motorbike still. Uh, everything was good. I had a driver. It was only me and my wife. I had a driver, I had a cleaner, and I had a chef. You know, there was only bloody two of us. Um, so the money was good, but I still thought, this ain't going to last long. I've got to get a real job. And my idea was I would eventually go to those people that I knew, and I would ask them for a job without realizing it. I was actually creating my own, which mm. was a concierge firm that went on to be one of the world's leading experiential concierge firms. I also ended up branding and marketing for a lot of the major events. And I've worked with everyone from the Grammys to Elton John's Oscar party, the New York Fashion Week, uh, the polio, uh, polo um, tournaments, uh, tennis, Ferrari. I've worked with some of the biggest brands in the planet. So I've done consulting, marketing, um, concierge. I ended up building my own industry. Um, and now I'm well known for sending people down to the Titanic and working with billionaires that own things like countries. Wow. And you did this all without a social presence. Am I right? Yeah, I had no social presence. And the funny thing was, um, and this, this should be a good lesson for the entrepreneurs. A lot of people now focus on their branding. They focus on their position, their, um, their optics, optics being, you know, how people see them. Um, and that tone of voice, I focused on the client. And so I would go up and say, hey, you know, I hear you're looking for something. What do you need? And there'd be no chit chat. There'd be no fluff. What do you need? Well, uh, I need this. All right, I'll get that for you. It'd be two grand. Get that paid in my account. I see it. I know you're serious. I'll get it done. And here goes back to my good old pappy. Okay. Living in East London, I would during the week come back from school. I'd go down to my local uh, Indian corner store and I would get all the groceries and I'd stick them on the thing. And um, there was Mr. Patel. He would go through them and he'd make a note of everything I'd got because my mum had given me a shopping list. And I would always sneak in a chocolate bar there. You know, I was a kid. And then I would leave without paying. And my mum would go back on the Saturday and she'd settle up because that's how you did it then. If you said, hey, Cover this, I'll be back to you next. It's like the bars. You used to walk into a pub. You used to get drunk, you'd fall over. You never paid the bar tab. You'd go back the following day and they'd be like, Steve, you owe me 20 quid. I'd be like, oh shit, all right. Because you only had 22. Mm -hmm. And you'd be like, oh bollocks, all right. Did I spend that much last night? You didn't doubt the barman because you stuck by your word. If he tells me I owe you 20 quid, I owe you 20 quid, you know? So I learned very early on, again, without realizing it, how powerful your word was. So when I focused on my, my, my business, in air quotes, my focus was if I say it's going to be done at Tuesday at 4 p.m., it's going to be done at Tuesday at 4 p.m. There's, there's no discussion in it. There's no flexibility. You know, it's going to be done then. And if you could do it by Monday at 4 p.m., no, 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 no. Wait, because you said Tuesday at 4 p.m. And so I started working that way and I started focusing on solving the problem. And then what everyone else was saying about me became my brand, became who I was. And in the early stages, and I'm a, I'm a serial failure. I am a massive failure. And the greatest people in the world, I'm not saying I'm great, but the best people in the planet are serial failures. Richard Branson, you probably have a lot of respect for him as an entrepreneur. How many virgin brands have failed? Tons, okay? Elon Musk, how many bloody times has a rocket crashed? Okay, <laughs> but has it stopped him going on? No, because from every failure comes your greatest growth. Because it's in that failing, there's the resources to educate you on how not to fail next. If everything's going really well for you, how the hell can you learn? So it's the failings to give you the best growth. So I failed an absolute ton. And when I started this and I started to have a bit of money and I think I had, I don't know, 50 grand in my account. And I thought, I'm starting to get paid. I better, I better focus on my brand and stuff like that. I actually launched a company and it had some dumbass uh, precocious name as a company. No one called me. 
but everyone called me going, hey, Steve, I believe you're the man that can do this. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, but maybe you want this company. And they'd be like, no, 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 we want you. And so I suddenly realized I was trying to create something that wasn't me. It wasn't what I stood for. They wanted transparency. They wanted directness. They wanted reliability. Like if, you, if you've got a leak in your bathroom and you call a plumber, okay, you don't care how good looking the plumber is. You want the plumber to turn up and stop the leak. I was the guy that stopped the leak. Um, and so I was the guy that you got on board to get shit done. And that in turn became my brand. So I didn't focus on my brand. The brand picked me as the conversation went on. It's like the Indian tribes. The Indian tribes don't name kids. You know, we, we have a child and we name it before it's come out. Oh, what's your boy called? Oh, we're going to call it Bobby. Okay. The Indians wait until they're 18 years old and they can see their, their attitude, their vibrance. They can see what they do. And then they name the child based on the character they are then. So that's what I did with my brand. And I was very fortunate that I screwed up early enough to be able to grasp it later. So this face-to-face -face conversation, you obviously do a lot of your business face-to-face, -face, always mm -hmm. actually talking to the individual. Because I'm well, on my commute to work, when I'm on the tube, you look up and everyone is looking down at their phone. No one talks to each other. You'd be standing in line for a coffee, no interaction, on your phone, order your coffee, on your phone again, walk off. How important is that interaction with another individual in how much do you predicate your success to that communication and your communication skills? So I'm going to give a plug here. I released a book two years ago. I was paid very well to release the book and I honestly didn't think it would get anywhere. And it's called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. And my whole book is about the ability to be able to communicate. That's the whole thing. And I thought to myself, well, I've got paid well to do the book. I may sell two copies, one to my wife, one to my mum, you know, that kind of thing. And um, it became a bestseller because people have realized that with all the technology we've got in the planet, the one thing we do not have the ability to replicate is another human being communicating with another human being. Okay. It's like us. We, we, at the beginning of the show where we were like, oh, hang on, is that working? Yes. Yeah, working. You don't have that interaction with AI. You know, you go on AI and you go, hey, I need toilet roll. The following day, toilet rolls delivered to your, to your house. But you can't go on AI and go, hey, what are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, that does not compute. You know, you, you can't have that conversation. You hit it on the head. I believe the ability or lack of ability to communicate is a growing cancer within today's society. And we do have top of the head syndrome. I have a podcast called The Art of Making Things Happen by, uh, with Steve Sims. And I interviewed um, this beautiful woman that happens to be the head of the Las Vegas Police Department. And she said, the problem is the police force has always been very hard to get people to come in and work for because they're underpaid and they're in danger every night. Um, but she said, worse than that is they come in and we've lost the ability for eye-to-eye -eye contact. If you're on the train and you look up and someone else is looking up and you make eye contact with them, it's nanoseconds before they go, whoop, shit, and yeah. they put their head down. I, I do this test, and I actually do this test, and I'm urging all of you out there to do it. So I run an event called a speakeasy. We went into a coffee shop. Uh, we did this one in uh, Reno, and we walked into a coffee shop, and I challenged everyone to have a two-minute conversation with someone that they didn't know in that coffee shop. And it's a stupid thing, but it was one of our little exercises. And I call it the cappuccino shuffle. They walk up to the counter of Costa Coffee or Starbucks. They order their coffee. They step to the right to where the, 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 the bar is, where they're going to get their coffee. They get out their phone and they look down. Okay? Every single time. Now, here's the daft thing. I don't know if you've ever done any boxing, but when you do boxing, any, well, if I said to you, hey, let's box, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to put your fists up against your chin, okay? You're going to get in a guard position, okay? Your elbows are in, you're protecting your body, and your guard's up. Now, imagine if you were looking on the phone. You pick your phone up, it's the exact same position. Without realizing it, you're in a guarded position. People bring the phone up to protect themselves. It's like when you're talking to someone you don't want to, you cross your arms. Okay, you're creating a barrier. When you do that and you do the cappuccino shuffle, 
you're doing the exact same thing. You're bringing your phone up to your face. You're protecting yourself and you're covering yourself. Now, my challenge for my team, and we had, I think, with 26 people. So we were in this coffee shop for a long ass time. <laughs> they had to go up there and they had to commence with a conversation. And they would walk up there and they'd be like, hey, how you doing? Hey, I love your shoes. And you'd get people, they, they would still do that. And they'd, be, they'd kind of peer over that phone and they'd go, oh, thank you. And do you know the funny thing is, when you say you love the shoes, the first thing they do is they look down at their shoes. You know, can you not remember what shoes you put on this morning? You know, but they go, oh, thank you. It's as though they're startled that they remember to put shoes on. And you go, where did you get those? And you just have to strike up a conversation. The easiest way to strike up a conversation is to get somebody talking about what they love, okay? If you notice on their phone that they've got a dog, then you can go, oh, I'm sorry, I just saw that pretty picture of your dog flash up. I love dogs. You, you love dogs? Yeah, I have a little dog. Bang. You know, if you can get someone to talk about what they like, their favorite football team, their music, their clothing, whatever, then they're going to kick off. Like if I was going to chat with you, I would start up a subject on rugby. Okay. And I'd say to you, hey, what's your favorite sport? Because I've got to be honest with you, I absolutely love rugby, but I don't really know much about the rules. Do you like rugby? Now, if I asked you that, and I've made that comment because from the back of the video, we can see you've got a rugby ball there. All right. But straight away, me doing that, you'll be like, well, it's actually not that hard a game to understand the rules. And because you like it, you would want to talk about it. And I've got you talking. Your phone goes down. And you know when you win, when the person physically puts the phone in the pocket. That's when you're fully engaged. And that was the competition we had. So I'm urging all of you out there to become better. I want you to strike up a conversation with your Uber driver, with your next door neighbor, your postman, on the train, in the cappuccino store. Try and strike up a conversation because I'm telling you now, AI is out there not to replace you, but to help you. But a lot of people are actually using it as a reason to stop communicating. And if we stop communicating, we're done. And I love that you say that as well, because I think, especially with AI, it's just more of a convenience thing. People just use it because it's so convenient. You order your, you don't go to the shop, you don't go to Tesco or Sainsbury's, you get your delivery done to you. Everything's done for you. And I love that you say as well, as soon as you can get someone talking about themselves, it's a breeze. It's why, I, it's why being a podcast, podcast host is a piece of piss. Of course I, I just, I ask a few questions for you throughout. The other person on the other end does the rest of the talking, and then we go, 50-minute episode, done, easy. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, and that's why podcasts are such... Look, there are people out there now listening to this. There are idiots out there now, and I'll call them that, saying he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know, AI, chatbots, technology, Alexa, Siri, um, they're all going to replace us, okay? And for those people saying that, you are 100% correct because you're str not strong enough to see why they're there. All of these things are there to enhance us. You see, if I can have all of my dog food delivered in the morning without me going down to the store, it gives me the rest of the day to communicate with people I want to communicate with. It doesn't stop me communicating. It allows me to do it better with better people that I want to communicate, do more business. All of the technology that we use today whether it be funnels, whether it be CRM programs, automation, VAs, uh, uh, chatbots, any of these processes are there to remove the dull from your life and allow you to focus on what your specials are, what your unicorn is. And no one has a good unicorn without the ability to communicate. There is so much technology in Silicon Valley today, but they actually employ people to come in, understand about the technology, to be able to explain it to someone else. Because unless you can inform someone of what this technology is solving and why it's important, it'll never get off the floor. You need someone to know what you're doing in order for someone to want to buy it, to be part of it, in order for you to be in business. So communication is the number one technology we need in our life. Exactly. And I completely agree. But something I'm actually very curious about, because I was speaking to a guy yesterday, 
He's an um, extremely successful ghostwriter. His name's Joshua Lysak. He's written books for A-list celebrities, so they come to him. He ghostwrites their books for them. But he expressed the importance of an expert actually having a book because it opens that door and makes you seem an expert. There could be you, yourself and five other people that speak on stage in a room. But if you've got a book saying that you speak on stage and everything about your communication skills like you have with your book, you're going to get the gig every single time because they think, why would I go with a guy that hasn't got a book? They're clearly not as, ex- their expertise isn't clearly as high as theirs. I'm going to go with a guy that's got a book. So since writing your book, how, has, how many doors has this opened for you? Oh, Jesus. So a good friend of mine is uh, Jay Abraham. And Jay Abraham, you know, thankfully lives just down the road from me. So I have, I have the concierge firm and I have the branding company but I work off of referrals. None of my websites have my phone number on them. They never have. I am 100% introduction on all of my business. And I was approached to write this book, naming all the famous people. And I said, I can't do it. And then they came back to me and they said, we'd like you to write the book because if a bricklayer from London could be doing what you're doing, no one else has an excuse. And I spoke with Jay and I'll be blunt. We got such a huge retainer out of writing this book. And I just thought, no one's going to buy it. No one's going to believe it. You know, the stuff I do with the Pope and Andrea Bocelli, no one's going to believe any of that. But I made money. So I thought to myself, I'm good. So we did the book. This year, I think I've done 24 speaking gigs. Okay. Um, I've got uh, between now and the middle of November, I've got eight more speaking gigs and I charge between fifteen to $25,000 for an hour keynote. And I'm in Spain, New York, Boston, uh, Vegas this weekend, San Diego. I'm all over the place. Um, it would not have come about had I not had that book. The second the book came out, well, not the second. The first month, my book sales were pretty slow. The second month, my book sales were half of the first month. And then the third month, it went up like a hockey stick. I think it was like 14,000 copies. And that was it. And I get people contact me from all over the world now going, how do you teach what you... Now, here's the dumb thing. We were all really smart at the age of six. And then after that, we started to let our own knowledge get in the way of our own growth. We would sit there and go, well, that doesn't work. Maybe I should find the blue pill. Maybe I should invest in a CRM program. Maybe I, and we end up chasing that technology that's going to solve our problems. Okay. Nine times out of 10, the biggest problems we got in our business are us. And if we can change us, then we ain't got to worry about 60,000. I was consulting with a new company the other day. Within our business plan was a $60,000 CRM program. And I said to him, you know, why do you need this? Well, we can automate this and flow out with this and this can be kept and we can manage and we can look at inventory. Okay, how many clients you got? Well, we haven't got any clients. So you want a CRM program that can track your inside leg measurement, but you ain't got a single, you're out of business. Focus on a client. You can always buy a CRM program down the road. You know, all of these things can be bought down the road, but if you ain't focusing on your front end, and you're not solving a problem, you're out. So when the book came to me, I did it because I wanted to release a book um, that I would be proud of. And it's just dragged me all. And I'm consulting, I'm speaking, I'm doing webinars, I'm doing podcasts with you. Um, You're in England, I'm in America. I've done, um, I did one in Asia, Singapore, Monday. Uh, Saturday morning, I think I did one in Dubai because they have a different weekend structure. Um, so I'm speaking literally all over the world in so many different ways. None of it would have come about if it hadn't been for the book. Wow. And why, why do you think the sales were so dramatic for the book to begin with then? So they were so, they were low and then they were even lower and then they hockey stick. Why do you think that happened? I think, well, when I first came, (laughs) it was funny, actually, there was a, an article that was written on me by Forbes, um, Forbes did an eight-page article on me, and there were pictures in there with, with me and Richard Branson, um, Elon Musk, Andrea Bocelli. You know, it was a phenomenal article. It really was an impressive article. 
And I was in New York and there was this girl in the building, the, the publishing house for the book. And she said, well, you need to work on your social. And I said, well, I've never really needed to work on social because, you know, all of my clients, they introduce each other to me, you know, and I work on a referral base. She said, yeah, but that, that won't work for book sales. You've got you've to get more people on Instagram. And I said, look, before you start telling me that, you do realize there was an eight-page article in me on me in Forbes a month ago. And she turned around and she said, no one reads Forbes. She said, you're not on Instagram. That's where I want to see you. And I, at the time, I thought, you little bitch. Um, but I had 16 followers on Instagram, 16. I think 15 of those may have been on there because they got lost and confused me for someone else. But I, I had, and I would post like maybe once every six months or something, another, another glass of my whiskey or something. Um, and I thought, oh, I don't know. So I started posting a little bit. People started to get to know me. Then I started doing a few stages. Then I started doing a few podcasts. And, you know, it just grew from there. And I think like everything, and again, this is the problem with today, people think you're going to launch something at 12 o'clock and be rich by 2 o'clock the following day. Okay? That does happen rarely. Okay? And these overnight successes usually took 10 years to actually get to the position where they were ready to be an overnight success. So my book for the first two months was like, it was funny. They said to me, you've got to do a book launch. I said, well, no one really knows me, you know? So where am I going to do this book launch? And they said, well, you know, and they do this in America. They say, you can take over a table at the front of the bookshop and you can have glasses of champagne. And when someone comes over, you sign a book for them and they get a glass of champagne. And I'm a big, ugly fella. The bottom line is, if I'm sat there and you don't know who I am, you've got no reason whatsoever to come over and talk to me, okay? I am I'm, I'm big, tattoos, piercing, riding around on a motorcycle. You're not going to be coming over to me because you think I know Elton John or Elon Musk. You're just not. Um, so I said to them, I said, how are we going to do this? And they said, we'll, we'll give you two and a half grand and get a table, get champagne, and uh, get some books and get ready. I was like, ah, I don't know. So they sent me two and a half grand. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. And I could just imagine me sitting there drinking my own champagne because no one's talking to me. Um, so I literally phoned up a bunch of my friends and we took over a whiskey bar in Hollywood and we put the two and a half grand behind the bar and I went, right, kick us out when that's gone. And we just, we just drank ourselves stupid. And a friend of mine actually videoed it. And it starts off with... Yeah, I'm here for Steve's book launch, and I'm really proud to support him. He's got a lot of vision. And then about two hours later, we're all drunk, and it's like, yeah, that guy's an arsehole, but he said I could get free drink. And we did this video, and so I posted it. And I actually said, look, you know, many people have got different ways of doing a, a book launch. Here was mine. And it was all these people being really abusive as they got more drunk. And people were like, this is weird. I wonder who this guy, and they started digging. And then as they started digging, that's when it took off. And then other people were like, you got to read this guy's book. And I get people now, they say, Hey, we just ordered a thousand books for our company. You know, can you fly into Utah and speak at our annual convention? And I'm like, yep. Okay. Then. So, you know, I jump on a plane, I fly out there. So it's really exciting the kind of things that it gets up to. And you're right. Um, every I don't know. Every little period, there's a new thing that gives you a tick to credibility. Like, you know, I remember when um, I got verified on, I think it was Instagram or something. Yeah. And people were like, that's a big deal. And I was like, well, why is it a big deal? That's because you've been verified as Instagram as you. And I was like, I already know I'm me. Why do I need a bloody tick to validate that I'm me? Who cares? Um, but it was a credibility thing. I'm verified. And then... I was speaking on stages before the book, not many stages. And then you're a speaker and then there's videos about you and then the book comes out and then podcasts. And so it's amazing how many different things, but the thing about the book is that it should be, even if you ghostwrite it and I know, I know Neil Strauss and a lot of other great ghostwriters, a good ghostwriter gets into your head and gives your story in a way that other people will understand. 
So I believe ghostwriters are very, very, very necessary because nine times out of 10, you don't know how to tell your story. Um, but when the book's out there, you don't know who's picking it up. You know, they could be at an airport. They could be, you know, on the other side of the planet. They could, I've had someone say to me that they got on a bus and there was a book there and it would be left on the, on the edge of the bus and they, they picked it up and they read it. Um, so obviously the first person that, that had it hated it that much, they just left it on the bus. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just the book literally has a mind and a will of its own. Um, it's doing very well now. Uh, it's been released... Uh, and translated into, let me see if I can get this right, Japanese, Korean, Thai, Vietnamese, um, and Mandarin Chinese. And we just sold the rights, I think, about a month ago to have it released in Russia in Russian. And wow. so I'm thinking, hang on a minute, there's me with this book. There's literally now all over the world. And I flew to Mexico and Thailand earlier this year, and I'm in Spain and London later on this year. So... If you're going to write a book, know two things. You can't pull it back, okay? You know, once it's out there, it's out there. And when you write the book, people are going to want more of you. You know, I had to start a website. I had to start doing other bloggings and videos. And before you know it, you kind of get this obligation. You've got, you've got to keep doing these things to get them to understand what you had trouble with and what you overcame so that they can avoid those scars in the first place. And now you get to travel the world, get paid, and do what you love doing, ultimately, which is, yeah. what more do you want from life? <laughs> it's pretty good. You know, it gets a little bit hectic sometimes, and uh, I'll always remember my dad, and I've got to give a shout-out to my granddad. Um, neither of them are with us anymore, but when I was 16 years old and I was on the building site, I was... Um, I was doing what they call hodding bricks. I had a bunch of bricks up on my shoulder because they had run out of a laborer that day. And I ran up the scaffolding and there was my dad right at the beginning of the scaffolding. Next to him was my uncle and then my cousins and then my granddad. Okay, my granddad was in his 70s. It was raining, it was cold, and they were laying bricks. And I saw my entire family tree on one lineup of scaffolding. And I went to my granddad during tea break time at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I said to him, the dumbest thing I've ever said, I've said some dumb things, but I said to him, did you think you were going to be doing this in your 70s? Well, of course, no one thinks they're going to be doing that in their 70s. He didn't even respond properly. He just turned around and he said, if you don't quit today, you're going to be me tomorrow. And that was it. And it scared the shit out of me. And I was like, Oh my God. And so I quit. I quit there and then. So a lot of these things has taught me um, that you've got to focus on going forward because you die in. You know, the bottom line of it is you and I, the, the thing we can guarantee is not riches and wealth and marrying playboy bunnies, but we can sure shit guarantee that the pair of us are going to die. Okay. We don't know when and we hope it's very, very far away, but it's, it's a certainty. So when I try to do stuff, I try to see what's the point and if it's going to work. When I'm traveling now and I'm sitting on a jet and I'm on first class and I'm flying back from Japan and I'm tired because I did back-to-back -back training sessions and I can't think and I'm worn out and I haven't checked my email and a cappuccino machine in first class is broken and I'm getting annoyed, I remember my granddad and I go, I'm bitching because I'm tired in first class because the fucking cappuccino machine's broke. My granddad would smack me out this little window if he was here now and heard me whining. So that's why my resentment turned into my greatest strength. And I love that you've been able to put it into, it's just a good way to be able to put everything into perspective and think you are actually in an extremely lucky, not wouldn't say lucky because you've definitely worked hard for it, but you're lucky. in an extremely, okay, lucky position. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can do all the positioning, you can do all the, the branding, all the marketing, but there's always that element of luck that you need on your side. And so when you stop thinking you're lucky is when you start thinking that you take things for granted. And that's usually when things go wrong. So I work hard. Uh, I enjoy life. Um, I love life. 
but I realized uh, I've got a little bit of luck with me and uh, I'm always going to be grateful for where I am. Never going to take it for granted. For sure. And that's super valuable and something everyone should take in. But you've dropped some incredible value throughout this whole episode and I can't thank you enough for your time. But I've got three quick fire questions to round off the episode on three topics I don't think are spoken about enough. And they are money, relationships and death. I know we've touched on that already, but it's a question that I'm going to completely ask you and just put it, put you on the spot for it. But the first question is in relation to money. I personally don't think it directs directly relates to money, but some do. So this is why I ask it. So question number one is what does the word success mean to you? Achieving what you were going for. Superb. Question number two regards to relationships throughout your journey so far have you found it difficult to maintain relationships with others whether that be friends family loved ones your kids especially when you've had to balance time between your business and them or have you found ways that you can bring those people along on your journey with you it's incredibly difficult um that's why you've got to focus on it and there's been many times in my life where my relationships have got soft or damaged And I've gone, hang on a minute, I'm not going to allow that to happen again. So it takes a lot of hard work to maintain those relationships. But I believe today your relationships are your wealth. And so your relationships are those there that will challenge, support, and give you a shoulder to cry on when things don't go right. So it's tough, but that's why you need to focus on it. And do you think you've found the right balance? No, I think you're always striving for it. You know, I always try... You know, um, like now, uh, as I said to you earlier, I'm speaking in Spain and England. Well, the beautiful thing is now financially, I'm able to bring the whole family with me. But there were many times where I would be gone. When I worked in, in, um, I had a client that wanted to get married in the Vatican by the Pope. I was in Rome for like three and a half months. I never got to see my kids during summer. I lost an entire month of, of my family. And I made buckets of money. Who gives a crap? I can never get that summer back. So you've really got to balance it. And so I don't think you ever get it right. You're always trying to find a balance, but I'm in a fortunate position now where I know where my priorities are. For sure. And I like the fact you related that back to money as well, and that money doesn't buy everything. And that's a prime no. example. It doesn't buy you your time with your kids when you are working hard. Obviously, it gives you the money to do it in the future, but kids just want time with their parents when they're young. They don't care yeah, about yeah. the of the time. They just want time. Yeah. So I know as a kid, when I got a present at Christmas, I didn't actually, I, I didn't care about the present. I cared more about the box, for example. It's like little things like that. Whereas so it's not the quality, it's more the quantity as a child. But I love the fact that you're able to see that. And now that obviously you have done well for yourself, you can do whatever you want. It's down to you. <laughs> <laughs> so final question in relation to death is, are you afraid of dying? Ah. Uh... Very, very tough question to answer and a beautiful one. No, I'm not fine of dying. Um, I am always concerned that before you die, when your life flashes in front of you, there would have been areas you waste. So death doesn't frighten me, but it scares me enough to take chances now. I don't, you see, I, I don't believe that you can live with regret. And I said to you before, the amount of mistakes I've made that have turned into my greatest successes, my greatest growth. So I always want to do something. So I, I look at my, my death and I go, right, I need to meet that head on. And I'm going to meet it head on by taking every opportunity I can today. So it frightens me enough to make decisions today that challenge me, but I'm not scared of the actual process of dying. Well, great way to end the episode. And thank you for your time. Um, for the listeners that do want to catch up with you and follow you on social platforms or if they've got a question for you, where can they do it? And plug links to your books, website, whatever. Sure. Well, uh, the book's called Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. It's on Amazon over there uh, and it's also on audio. Um, but I have a website called Steve D. Sims, S-I-M-S. There's only one uh, M in it. So Steve D for David, Sims.com. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook. I actually have a free Facebook page called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. And I'm often on there. I bunged a couple of videos up there today. If I find something that makes me happy, annoys me, buggers me off, I'll do a little video and I'll plug it up there for my people. So um, I'm very vocal uh, on my platforms. 
Instagram and Facebook are probably my two biggest, but I am growing on LinkedIn now. So you, you can track me down under Steve D. Sims. I'm the, uh, the bald, good-looking guy with the eyebrow piercing. <laughs> Perfect. And they will be in the show notes below for anyone that missed All that. Right. So don't worry about remembering those. Just simply look down below. Steve, once again, thank you for your time. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all your aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day. And once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals.